Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you, and I'll go ahead and say it. Happy Happy New Year, a day early here. And um, my name is uh, Jacob Yarbrough. I serve here as one of the elders, and this morning I'll be reading the, the scripture passage. And we'll be reading from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. And I invite you to join along with me as I read from God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in, in verse 23, we'll read down through uh, chapter 11, verse 1. It says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone should say to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience's sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, good morning. If you are a first-time visitor, you should know I'm not the pastor. I am one of the elders here at Calvary Bible as well. So I would like to begin with a question. How many of you felt like this year turned out exactly as you planned for it to? Raise your hand. I don't see a lot of hands. All right. Let me ask you another question. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, how many of you here this morning are a little bit discouraged and set back by your walk this year? You feel like maybe you had a goal at the beginning of the year about the things that you were going to do for the Lord personally and about the steps you were going to take toward your own personal holiness uh, as you strive to become more like Jesus and you miss those marks. Probably everybody. So I want to encourage you this morning. I hope that the message comes off as that this morning as an encouragement. Uh, the first thing I would like to say is this. When the Lord plucked you out of your darkness and determined to make you His and to make you like Jesus, He knew that you were a long-term project. So you can be encouraged by that. So nothing that's happened this year is a surprise to God. He knew it was coming all along. So, all that being said, the new year is upon us. 2024 is almost here. How many of you guys make New Year's resolutions? Raise your hand. (laughs) 
That is so funny because I, I asked our staff that a couple of weeks ago, and none of them made New Year's resolutions either. <laughs> so maybe this New Year's resolution thing is not as popular as they make it sound. Well, there are a lot of people probably uh, that at least take some time as the year is winding down and the New Year's approaching to reflect. I'm sure at some point you've probably done that. If not, um, you know, in a manner where you just sat down at a table with a pad and a pen and you outlined all the many goals you've reached and the many that you didn't, at least in some subconscious level you've kind of evaluated where you stand and where you fell throughout the year. So many people uh, will be doing that today, probably with a pen and a, uh, a pad of paper. Probably if you're an engineer, uh, you're probably going to do something like that. They're going to evaluate the myriad of decisions that they made throughout the year. And they're going to evaluate the goals that they attained and those that they failed to reach. And then they're going to, as they do this, resolve to improve in those areas where they feel like they have failed. Uh, So some of the more common uh, resolutions that Americans uh, are going to be making this year, according to uh, some of the larger polls, uh, most Americans, as they look back over the year, 23% to be exact, as they look back over the year, say, you know what, I didn't save enough money this year, so I'm going to resolve to do a better job of tucking some of that away in the new year. I found it interesting, the second resolution that most Americans were going to be making, 22% of Americans, was to be happy. Not be happier, just be happy. I think that's sad. Uh, 21% committed to exercise more in the new year. 19% are committed to lose weight. Now, just think about that for a minute. 21% are committed to exercise, 19% are committed to lose weight. Some of these commitments aren't going to reach their mark. Uh, 16% learn something new this year. 15% of Americans want to read more. 15% of Americans want to spend more time with family. 13% are committed to pay down some debt. 12% committed to quit some bad habit that they have. 11% want to travel more. 9% get a new job. 8% want to get a hobby. These are pretty decent resolutions, right? Uh, There's nothing wrong with them, for sure. You evaluate them and look good. These are good resolutions. But one of the things that we need to take into account as we look at these Resolutions, or even as we begin to determine those things that we're going to do differently this year, is we need to realize that resolutions uh, are nothing more than decisions that are rooted in our perception of our purpose. So let me just illustrate that for just a second. If I felt like it was my purpose over the next five years to become Mr. Olympia, then what will probably happen is I'm probably going to eat better, uh, eat more, and show up at the gym a lot more, right? I mean, so my goals are going to uh, 
uh, align with that purpose that I see for myself. If I had in my heart, if it was, I felt like it was my purpose uh, to step out and become the next president of the United States of America, then I'm probably going to align my goals, the things that I do in life, with that purpose. You should know that will never happen. Not for the reasons that you think, but uh, in my son's, my oldest son, his uh, wedding reception, after the dancing part of the reception, the videographer came up to me. He said, if you ever run for office anywhere, I'm going to make a lot of money. So for that reason, I will not be running for president. But we make goals and we commit to the pursuit of those goals based on some sense of purpose. Our text for today, it seems like the oddest place to kind of tuck this away in the Bible. But embedded in the things that we're going to look at today is a very well articulated statement of man's purpose. Why we're here. Why we exist. Why we should do anything that we do at all. And it's found in verse 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's why we're here. That's our purpose. So we should align our hearts, our minds, our lives with God's purpose. In fact, that's the big idea today. If you don't get anything else out of the message, get that. Resolve this year. It's okay to make resolutions. (laughs) It's okay to evaluate, look at where you've been, and look forward to where you're going, and make resolutions, commitments um, regarding where you're going to end up at the end of the year. And it's really, really good to evaluate our spiritual life and say, you know what? This year, I'm going to do everything I do for the glory of God. So that's the big idea this morning. Resolve to align your life with God's purpose and bring glory to his name. Let me pray and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you for your word, for your grace in our life. I stand here just in imperfect heart for sure. I have not measured up to the things I thought I would measure up to this year. And I know there are many other hearts here that feel that same way. I am so grateful, Lord, that all of our security rests in Jesus. It doesn't rest in us. We're grateful for your forgiveness and for your grace. We're grateful that every morning that we wake up, your compassion is brand new. Lord, help us to rest in Jesus. Help us to receive from this message encouragement and strength and grace. Help us to hear your voice speak to us. And help us respond in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is the message itself is only like 10 minutes long. The bad news is there's like 40 minutes of context in front of it. So... <laughs> See, y'all didn't laugh much. 
Uh, we'll move through it pretty quick, I promise. All right, so the first thing that I feel like we need to touch on before we even dig into this passage is this issue of God's glory. We talk about it all the time. It is a term that is spread throughout all of the scripture. We use it in our Christian conversation all of the time. But I understand many of us may not actually understand what it means. So I want to dig in just a little bit. Uh, to what God's glory is. And uh, God's glory, if we're going to understand it properly, we need to go all the way back to the beginning uh, of the Scriptures, into the Old Testament. We're going to dive into the book of Exodus here in just a minute. But before we even get there, let me just capture your attention with this thought. God's glory is His character manifested to and through his creation. Now that fits with scripture. You think about something like Psalm 19 where it says the heavens declare the glory of God. What are the heavens doing? They're not pouring forth speech. That passage actually tells us they're not actually communicating anything that's audible. But they're proclaiming God's glory. His creation is reflecting his character, his nature. Okay, Everything that he has created is uh, manifesting his character and his nature. So uh, at the very beginning, God had determined, he had a plan before the foundation of the world. Again, he knew what we were and what it would take to rescue and redeem us and make us like his son and bring us to himself. And so from the very beginning, he had a plan. And part of that plan was to make a nation that he could project his fame through to the entire world. And so God began with one man, Abraham. And God built the most influential nation on planet Earth, the nation Israel. Influential in that through the nation of Israel, every other nation on the face of the planet is blessed. So at the birth of this great nation, God plucked out a man named Moses. Moses, who was an Israelite, was raised in Pharaoh's household. We're all pretty familiar with that story. But to some degree, Moses was separated from the history of his people. He was somewhat separated from the stories that they might tell all the time because he wasn't in the presence of his people to hear those things. And that's how the history of that nation was passed on, was verbally at that time. But what Moses was very familiar with, because he was raised in Pharaoh's household, was the worship of local deities, right? So the Egyptians were well known for the numerous local deities that they worshipped. In Egypt, they worshipped the god Ra, who was the god of the sun, Osiris, the god of death, Horus, the god of goodness and light, Seth, the god of war, Anubis, the god of the dead, and Amon, the god of the air. And, of course, there were many other gods that they worshipped. Moses understood these gods to some degree. But he didn't quite yet understand Yahweh. And so, one day, uh, in the desert, Moses had been plucked out to lead this great nation... He struggled with that leadership responsibility. 
He had roughly two million plus people that uh, he was tasked uh, with their very lives, made responsible for them. And these were hard people. These were complainers. These were gripers. They, you know, they, all sorts of things wrong with them. Moses had a hard job. It wore on him. And so one day in the desert, he finally broke down. And he lifted up his voice to God out of the discouragement and the frustration. He cries to God in despair. And in that moment, he seeks something from God so that he might better understand him and obtain his favor. And so this is what Moses says to God in that moment of despair. Exodus 33, if you'll want to look over there for a few minutes, we'll probably reference this back uh, throughout the message, so you might want to keep your finger there. But beginning in verse 12, Moses uh, says this, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Then the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Show me your glory. What is Moses asking for here? The word glory in Hebrew is kabod, and it means heaviness, it means importance, it means reputation. Moses is basically saying, show me what gives you weight. I understand all of these local deities that I was brought up to worship. Ra, the sun god, I understand that. He's in charge of the sun. Osiris, the god of death. Seth, the god of war. What are you the god of? What should you be known for? What gives you weight? And notice God's response, verse 19. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim my name. Now turn over to 34. And we'll look at just uh, verse 5 and 6 and 7 there. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, 
who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses bows low to worship. God revealed his glory to Moses. He showed Moses what it was that gave him weight. What it was he wanted to be known for. The information that should be passed on from Moses through the nation of Israel into the surrounding nations. This is what God wanted the world to know about him. The glory of God is the visible manifestation of his attributes and his character. The glory of God is the visible manifestation of God's attributes and his character, his name. Even today, we still use that type of an analogy. Uh, you might remember uh, when you were young and uh, you just learned to drive and you were eager to get out on the town. And when you would leave, sometimes your mom or your dad might say, remember what your last name is. Right? Am I the only one? <laughs> Connie used to tell our kids, make good choices. Why? Because it reflects on us. It impacts our name. And so your name is bound up in your character. Your character is bound up in your name. And God made all that he made so that he could manifest his character through it and spread the fame of his name. So everything that has been made has been made so that the great character of our God could be seen by the creation that he made. This is why he preserved Israel in spite of her rebellion through the years. After he crafted this great nation to be a tool to spread his fame, to reflect his name and his character to the world, they fell miserably at that task and repeatedly he would have to warn them, if you don't get on track, I'm going to have to discipline you severely. And ultimately, he did discipline them. He did discipline them. But Psalm 106.8 says, nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Everything that God made reveals him. This is why Romans 12 or 120 says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Everything made reveals the invisible attributes of God. Listen to how the NIV translates Romans 11:36 for everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. So God made us and he saved us 
so that we could manifest his character, so that we could bring him glory. That's why we exist. Philippians 1, 9 through 11 says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. So that's a very narrow look at what the scripture has to say about God's glory, what it actually is. But it is the manifestation of his character in and through his creation. And like I said, Israel was created solely for that purpose to manifest, to reflect that character to the world so that the world can be blessed to see and to know God. But they failed miserably at that task. Israel Israel, uh, was uh, disciplined repeatedly. And this discipline brought a reproach upon God's name. Instead of reflecting his character and pointing to him, what it actually did was it caused the nations around them to see the things that were happening in a different light, in a misunderstood way, and they came to believe uh, that God is nothing. Well, let's go back to Moses' conversation there in Exodus 33 for just a second. Look at verse 16 again. Moses says, For how then can it be known... That I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. God's presence with the nation of Israel was signif- uh, signified in a couple of different ways. Uh, by miraculous acts of power, protection, and provision. And these things resulted in supernatural phenomena that the rest of the surrounding country saw. They witnessed God in these ways, in his foreness of this nation. And they were forced to say, man, there must be something about that God. That was the idea, right? Um, The problem is, Israel's supernatural blessings, their supernatural provisions, the supernatural power and protection that God was willing to afford them to distinguish them from all of the other nations on the face of the earth was conditional. God had drawn out a contract of sorts, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, and it was a covenant that said, as long as you follow me and as long as you obey me, I'm going to pour out these blessings upon you. But if you disobey me, and if you go your own way, then I'm going to pour out these cursings on you. And so, because Israel was so disobedient, they often ended up on the other side of that covenant. And instead of seeing the multitude of blessings that God had for them, they ended up seeing a lot of the cursings. They forced God's hand in many ways that end up impacting his fame 
In fact, um, there were a number of occasions where Moses felt the need to intercede for the people when God brought about his discipline because he was afraid that the surrounding nations were, in fact, going to see God in a negative light. He was concerned that the discipline that Israel was incurring would make God look incompetent to accomplish his purposes. And a good example of this is found in Numbers 14, 11 through 15. So the Lord's very upset with the nation of Israel. They had uh, been sent to investigate the promised land. And you remember a number of spies went in and they kind of evaluated everything. And only a couple came back and said, yeah, we can do this because God is with us. And most of them came back and said no. And all of the nation was complaining and griping. And they had already been involved in idol worship. And God was already very upset with them. And so in verse 11, the Lord says, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs that I have performed in their midst. Verse 12, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. And I will make you, talking to Moses, into a nation greater and mightier than they. So God was willing, ready to just completely wipe out the nation of Israel and reboot the whole process through Moses and just start all over from scratch. Then Moses says this to the Lord, verse 13. Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength you brought up this people from their midst. And they will, they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Moses was concerned that the nations surrounding Israel would see God as incompetent because of his discipline. I think it's interesting to note, if you go on further and read there in verse 18, the thing that Moses uses, the, the, what he roots his appeal in, almost word for word, verbatim, is the very thing that God revealed to him in Exodus 33. Where God laid out his character before Moses. He said, this is who I am. This is my name. This is what gives me weight. Moses, here in this moment, refers back to that moment in time to make his appeal to God. He says, remember who you are. Eventually, God had no choice but to discipline the nation and scatter her abroad, away from the promised land. But because of this very principle, because of this thing that Moses appealed to God on, the principle of God's glory being interconnected to his character in his name, God promises to rescue Israel and to return her to the promised land and to fulfill 
his promises. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and 23 says this, and this is a prophetic statement. Many of you are probably familiar with it. Um, But this is a promise to the nation of Israel that he would, in fact, return her to her land and that he would keep those promises that he had made to her, but not because of them. So verse 22 and 23, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. We'll stop right there before we get to verse 23. What God is saying is, because I had to discipline you, because I was forced into exercising this, this harsh means of discipline and separate you from the land and forego the blessings that I had once promised you, the nations did in fact look at me like I was incompetent. The nations looked at me as if I was unable to keep my word. The nations look at me as if I'm unholy, unable, unloving, uncaring. Everything against those attributes that I defined to Moses. They look at me as if I'm not that. You've profaned my name because of your sin. Because of the discipline that I had to bring to you. But I am who I am. So I will keep my word, not for you, but for my name's sake, so that the world one day will know that I am God, and every knee one day will bow and confess that. So verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. So God was being mocked. His name was being reproached. And for his own namesake, God is acting to bring back the renown of his name to the surrounding nations. So that helps us understand a very significant principle as we approach our text today. God is reproached and dishonored when his people sin. And there's nothing that you do that is kept secret. The sin that you commit in the quietness of your home, behind a locked door, is not concealed in regard to its impact. It's not. We learn that from the story of Achan in Exodus. A man who thought he could steal something that God had said was off limits. He took it, hid it in his tent. Nobody saw him do it, but it impacted the entire nation. It's a lesson God wants us to understand. Our sin impacts, whether anybody else sees it or not. And the way that it impacts is this way. God sees it. And because of his commitment to us, because of his commitment to conform us to the image of Jesus, he's not going to allow us to live in that sin. He can't. 
So what is God going to do? Eventually, after warnings, eventually, after encouragement, after rebuke, He's going to bring discipline. He's going to make your life hard. You won't be able to hide how hard your life is from everybody. And what's going to happen is the world's going to see it. Our sin will demand God's chastening. The chastening that God brings into our life will make us miserable. The misery in our life will be seen through the eyes of unbelievers. And it will make God appear to them as unloving, as powerless, or as downright unbelievable. When we sin, when we profane God's holy name, in a sense, we give God bad press. We make the world see him for something other than what he actually is. God uses the apostle Paul as a mouthpiece uh, to articulate his frustration over this very thing again toward the nation of Israel in Romans Romans 2.24 says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I just wonder how many of us sitting here this morning, that might be the case for us. God's looking at us and he said, My name is being profaned. Among the Gentiles, the unbelievers around you, because of you. The unbelieving world that surrounded Israel at the time, and Israel that proclaimed that they knew the one true real God, not understanding the chastening that Israel was walking through, that God was bringing down the hand of discipline. They saw those things and they subconsciously disregarded God as a reality. The Corinthian church, the church that we're going to discuss in the last few minutes here this morning, were heavily Immersed in sin. They were profaning God's holy name through almost every activity they participated in as a church. In fact, the entire letter of 1 Corinthians is written as a stern rebuke to that church. Everything in it is Paul admonishing them to change. Stop doing this, start doing that. The entire letter. The church had a myriad of issues, ranging from cliques and divisions that you see in chapters 1 through 4, to severe sexual immorality, the kind that wouldn't even be named uh, among the heathen in chapters 5 through 7. Abuses of Christian liberties, such as what food you could or couldn't eat, in chapters 8 through 10, and in fact, that's where we kind of 
pick up there in chapter 10 as Paul is concluding his address about some of those things. In chapter 10, he summarizes a lot of the things that he had already said in the previous chapters. And I think it's from this brief summary that we can glean some principles to help guide us through the new year. You need to understand the context to some degree. So uh, I'm going to make that clear for you. The issues over food that Paul is specifically addressing here in this summary weren't just issues of preference, right? It's not just, hey, Connie likes Rosie's and I like nothing but noodles, right? It's not that kind of an issue. The issue is meats that had been butchered and and sacrificed in the pagan temples and offered to these pagan gods that were no, no gods at all. So the church, which was a combination of Jew and Gentile, just weren't sure what to do with this meat uh, once it came out of those pagan temples because it was taken away from there and people in the community would eat it. Right? And sometimes it would even end up back in the meat market and resold. And so the churches didn't know what to do. And there was a conflict. There was division in the church about how they were supposed to address that. And there's a lot of fighting and bickering over this issue. So uh, the question that they wrestled with is if the meat had been offered to the temple idols, can we, should we eat that meat? The weaker, the younger, the more immature believers that had just recently came out of some of those pagan worship practices were greatly offended when the church partook of that meat. And you can understand that, right? I mean, they've been drawn out of that severe darkness uh, where these practices uh, were happening. And now they're over here and in, they're in, in the church. And some people in the church appear to be participating in some of these dark practices just by eating the meat that was sacrificed to those idols. And so it was a great offense to these young, immature believers. And so Paul makes uh, a long address in chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, and then again summarizes some of that teaching here. But the bottom line is this. For the sake of appearance, Paul admonishes these believers to avoid this food. He says, even though the food sacrificed to idols carries no true spiritual significance, avoiding it would save the conscience of your weaker brother. We don't have to, in our society, worrying about going down to Publix or somewhere like that and picking up a pack of hamburger meat and have, have to concern ourselves. You know, was this thing butchered and sacrificed to idols in some pagan temple? At least I don't think we have to worry about that. <laughs> that doesn't seem to be a concern for us in this society. So how do we take this principle that's here and apply it to our needs as a church today? Are there issues that the church wrestles with today? Are there any gray areas in the Bible that the church is in conflict over. You know, the, the Bible's pretty good about 
addressing very specific things. There are a lot of places where the Bible says, do this, and you know for sure that this is something that you should do. And there are a lot of places where the Bible says, do not do this. And so you know that these are things that you should not, for sure, participate in. But in between, thou shalt and thou shalt not, there's a gray area where we operate. And in a 365-day year, 24-hour day, there are myriads of decisions that we make that fall in that area. In between, thou shalt and thou shalt not. I'll just give you just a few examples of things that Christians today wrestle with that aren't specifically, despite what you might believe, addressed in a pinpoint fashion in the Word of God. One of those is drinking, the partaking of alcohol, wine, liquor, beer, right? So if you're, whatever side of the argument you're on, you probably have some scripture that you point to and the other side has some scripture that they point to. But the one thing that we cannot do is say dogmatically that the Bible says, thou shalt not, or thou shalt So that seems to be a gray area. Some Christians do it, and other Christians don't. And the ones that don't oftentimes look down on those that do. And the ones that do oftentimes look down on the ones that don't. So it's become a a place of contention. Dancing. Um, That's why the movie Footloose was released. (laughs) TV, movies, politics, what day we're supposed to worship, how we're supposed to spend our money, what our language should be like. And honestly, uh, I can tell you this as a young believer, when I heard um, our pastor uh, use a word that was outside of what I thought was uh, vocabulary he should be using, it messed me up. Okay, he didn't consider it a cuss word, but I did. And it messed me up and it messed me up for years. I mean, it messed me up bad enough that here I am today talking to you about it. So the things that we exercise in our life in regard to our Christian liberties have the potential. To actually wreck and tear down the body of Christ. So there are, a, there are four principles, and I'm going to go over real quickly, that will help you determine how to navigate some of these choppy waters. But I think that they're principles that we can pluck out and we can apply to almost every decision that we're going to face in the new year and help us make decisions that will actually bring God glory this year as opposed to a reproach. So, real quickly, principle number one is choose edification over gratification. Uh, Verse 23 says this, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Paul was renowned for saying this, all things are lawful. You see it other places uh, in this uh, letter. Uh, the Corinthians had heard him say it before, and they had begun to pick up the statement and use it as slang term. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. I can do whatever I want to do. And in regard to the amoral, 
decisions, that gray area, that's true. But not all things edify. Not all things build up. Not all things are beneficial. And everything that we do should be done to the end that we are built up as individuals and as a church. We are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Peter puts it in 2 Peter 3.18. So there are four basic tools that help do that. Um, so number one, the Word. Read the Bible. Acts 20.32 says, I commend to you the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up. The Word edifies. The Word builds up. Preaching and teaching. Get under the umbrella of preaching and teaching as much as you possibly can. God has been gracious to us in our culture and has provided us with rich access to His world. The rest of the world doesn't have the kind of access that we do. Uh, but we have it in such rich, rich access that almost uh, anywhere we are, we can pull out our phone and we can have uh, a good man of God presenting an exegetical message to us, right? So there are tons of apps. Uh, so get under the preaching and teaching of the Word of God as much as possible. Um, so uh, the Word edifies, the Word Builds, builds us up. And again, in chapter 14 of this uh, letter, Paul writes to the Corinthians, again rebuking them, and he says, instead of speaking in tongues all the time, what you should be doing is prophesying, preaching. Uh, because preaching has the end of exhortation. Preaching has the end of consolation and edification. It builds you up. Love builds you up. 1 Corinthians 8.1 Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Obedient service. Find a place to plug in. Determine what your spiritual gifts are. Uh, Ephesians 4.12 indicates that when the saints do the work of the ministry they, that they're gifted to do, the body of Christ is built up. So do things that edify, that build up the body of Christ instead of gratifying the flesh. Okay? And one of the biggest problems Americans have today is entertainment. Okay? Find something that's constructive, that's building. Wean yourself away from entertainment. Principle number two, choose others over self. Verse 24, uh, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Seek the good of your neighbor. When you have a choice between what builds you up and what builds up the weaker brother, choose what builds up the weaker brother. Choose Others over self. Romans 15.2 says each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 22 that the second commandment to the greatest commandment is what? Love your brother. Right? So choose others of yourself. Love your brother well. Principle number three, choose liberty over legalism. Look at verses 25 through 30. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without question, for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions, for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat, sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who has informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I gave thanks? 
Bottom line is, don't unnecessarily burden your conscience. We should understand that there are varying degrees of maturity within the body of Christ. And while there is a tension here where we are to put our liberties on pause for the sake of the weaker brother, we don't need to seek out all of those different weaknesses so that we can cater to them. Because the overarching idea is that when we do put our liberties on pause, they're so we can come alongside our weaker brother and explain to them why this is a weak form of thinking and bring them up to a higher state of maturity. That's the goal, to build up, to bring them into a greater uh, uh, image of Jesus. And so choose liberty over legalism. Don't allow the weaknesses to exist to capture and derail the liberty that Christ has brought to us. And principle number four, this is an old one, WWJD. I mean, it's a great, great thing. I know it's late 80s or 90s, but what would Jesus do? I mean, we don't use that anymore. I don't, I don't ever hear, I don't see the bracelets anymore. But what would Jesus do? Paul says, I know what he would do. I followed him. So follow me. Let me encourage you in the, in the new year. Set your goal for Jesus. He is the prime example. That's what we're chasing after. One of the things that we teach kids at camp is we're teaching them how to read maps and to, and to hike. We teach them to look for that goal, but sometimes that goal is hidden behind a mountain. And you can't see it. So do the next best thing. Find a landmark that is in direct path to your goal. And you track your way to that landmark. And then when you get there, you reorient yourself. Well, Paul, during his time, was probably the closest landmark that the Corinthians could find on their course to Jesus. And he's still a good landmark for us, but there are other landmarks today. Paul is speaking of discipleship. Find somebody to get under that you can track with. Let that be your landmark. And pursue them to the end that they are pursuing Jesus. And when you get to where they are, reorient yourself. I just want to wrap up this morning in conclusion, again with this thought that it is okay to take the time to evaluate what's happened in the past year and to set goals for the future. In fact, I would argue that we should do that. If we're not intentional in that regard, if we're not strategic in that regard, we will probably most likely fail at hitting goals that we never set, right? I assure you the enemy is strategic. The enemy is going to be intentional in his efforts to derail God's plan for your life this year. So I would encourage you to evaluate what's happened over the past 365 days and project a different route this year. 
and use this passage. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do for the glory of God to be the lens that you evaluate what's happened and to be the guide for how you approach the new year and all the decisions that you're going to make. I'm going to get you to close your eyes and I'll get to Chris, you can come on up. I just want to read a set of resolutions that Jonathan Edwards made well-known pastor in his time whose influence is so far-reaching that if you're here today, it is, you're well-connected to Jonathan Edwards. Okay, That's how influential his ministry was. But he was only as successful as he was because of the resolutions that he had made. Jonathan Edwards, uh, in his writings, wrote... Um, being sensible that I am, unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions. So far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake, I will remember to read over these resolutions once a week. Resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to the glory of God in my own good, profit, and pleasure, in the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages since, resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty, and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolve never to do anything out of revenge. Resolve never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to his dishonor, more or less upon no account except for some real good. Resolve to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently is that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Resolved never to count that a prayer, nor to let that pass as a prayer, nor that as a petition of a prayer, which is so made that I cannot hope that God will answer it, nor that as a confession which I cannot hope God will accept. Resolved to ask myself at the end of every day, week, month, and year, wherein I could possibly, in any respect, have done better. Father, we've done our best to honor your word. We pray now that you bless it and bring fruit from it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.